Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the Old Testament prophecy of Nahum. Nahum will be in chapter 3 this morning, and Lord willing, again next week as we will finish up our short stay in, in this short prophecy. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 will be our text today. The title of the message is A Disgraced City and the Bride of Christ. I had a slightly maybe more provocative title um, throughout the most of the week, but as I kept reading, reading over this graphic um, telling of this story in Scripture, I decided to soften the title just a little bit. But what we're going to look at is the disgrace of the city of Nineveh and, and contrast that with our duty and our role as the bride of Christ. The Lord has promised deliverance to His people in Nahum chapter 1. He promised that he would restore them, that he would free them from their captors. And then in chapter 2, we saw a couple weeks ago, the Lord just graphically and vividly described the battle and the overtaking of Nineveh that would take place. And now we come to the third chapter, and, and we see some more pictures, more glimpses into that battle, and the Lord just promising to utterly destroy and disgrace this pagan immoral people. So let's read the text, Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us as we study His Word. Would you please stand with me, if you're able, and let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Nahum chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, this is holy, inerrant, and inspired Scripture, the very words of God to us, His people. Woe to the bloody city! completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show the nations your nakedness. And to show the kingdoms your disgrace, I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now let's bow together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our great God, you are exalted in the heavens, King of kings and Lord of lords, the God from eternity past, the God through eternity future, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, all things exist through you, by you, and for you. Lord, you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. 
Thank you that your son gave of his life to die on a cross to bear the weight and the punishment and the wrath for our sins. Thank you that when he was laid in the tomb, that death did not keep its hold on him and that he rose in victory. And thank you that he has returned to the right hand of the throne of the Almighty where he ever lives to intercede on behalf of his people. Lord, what a glorious Savior. What a glorious work. What a hopeful salvation. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to receive the truth. Lord, to be reminded of the great divide that ought to be just so clearly evident between us and the world. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that zealously and fervently seek to obey you and serve you. Lord, I pray that we would give all that we have, all of our strength, all of our energy, all of our time, all of our devotion to serving you, to making Christ known, and to conforming our lives to the example of our Savior. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would work in us through your Word today. Lord, physically and spiritually, we are weak and feeble and frail, but your Spirit is mighty. You can speak through broken and frail vessels, and you can cause those same broken and frail vessels to receive and eagerly apply the truth to the praise of your glory. So, Lord, I ask that that would be the work that you would do today among your people by the powerful working of the Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace in Christ. Make us more like the Savior. Separate us more from the world. Give us more boldness with the gospel. Cause us to have a greater hope and joy in the future inheritance laid up for us with Christ. Lord, there are so many things in life, in this world, that can take our attention and affection away from you. Lord, we live in constant danger of falling back prey to our flesh and playing the harlot and running back into our sin, but for your grace and your spirit indwelling us. Lord, would we be a people set apart, people for your possession, for your glory, conform to Christ, transformed by the renewing of our minds through the truth and the authority of your holy scriptures. Lord, my prayer is that you would receive all praise and honor and glory today. Pray that all that we do would make much of Christ. And I pray all this in Christ's name alone. Amen.
So as we move into kind of the, the final phase of the prophecy of Nahum, we, we start to get this clear picture as to why Nineveh is going to be destroyed, why the Lord is going to bring this disgrace upon them, and the why is really simple. It's because as the Lord lays out through Nahum, the people of Nineveh have played the harlot. The, the Lord has brought them to repentance just a hundred or so years before Nahum's day, brought them to national repentance, and now they have turned from the Lord in just a couple short generations. They've run into pagan immorality, pagan idolatry, and untold sin and wickedness. The Lord never allows this evil to remain. We understand that his timing is not always like ours. He does not operate on a fixed schedule that we sometimes would ask and hope and have him to to follow, but it's the Lord who is in the heavens. It's the Lord who rules and reigns. It's the Lord that bears the responsibility of carrying forth the glory of his name. And as the Lord carries out this destruction, he does not merely overrun Nineveh, but he brings utter disgrace upon them, really as a payback for their oppression, specifically of Judah, God's people. The Lord is not only compassionate towards us, his people, but he is a wrathful, avenging God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And because of this pagan worship and this deceit and oppression of the Assyrian Empire, the Lord is going to bring utter disgrace upon them. So as we think about this text, as I kind of said at the outset, really what we need to do to to rightly understand this is, is to think about how does this text point us to Christ? How does it relate to those of us who are in Christ and really The way that it does is through contrasting the idea of this harlotry, this prostitution of Nineveh, and us as the bride of Christ. We consider our great bridegroom who gave his life on the cross to purge us, to purify us, and to wash us, and we consider how then we must live, how we must not be like this immoral city, this immoral people. We must remember as the Lord promises to disgrace this people that this very same disgrace is ours if we don't come to Christ. If your hope is not in Christ alone, you will be disgraced in this way. You will be destroyed and torn down. You will face eternity in hell. We must remember the steep price that Christ paid and the reason that he paid that price. Ephesians 5 tells us that he wanted to sanctify his bride, that he might present us to himself, present the church to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So that's really what we want to see as we consider, is what we must see as we consider the disgrace of the city. So narrow that down into a chief kind of guiding, guarding purpose today. It's that we must respond to this example of a disgraced nation 
We must respond to that by walking in the purity and the spotlessness of our position in Christ. That is, we must consider the work completed at the cross, and we must walk and live in light of it. You see this example of the destruction that the Lord brings, and it ought to remind you of the steep price that was paid for your soul, and it ought to cause you to walk in holiness. Remembering Nineveh's history, that they were just a century removed from that great repentance in Jonah's day. Dear friend, that ought to be a sober warning to us. It ought to remind us that this work of repentance never ends. It ought to remind us that we cannot become lazy in our working out the salvation that the Lord has worked in us. We do walk. We do have our life and our hope only by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. But if you cease striving to kill sin, sin will overtake you. And you will be drugged back into the mud. Look to Nineveh as an example. And live as the bride of Christ. So I want to begin in verses 1 and 4. Verses 1 and 4 And consider a diseased people. Verse 1 says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. Woe to the bloody city. You might recall the the eight woes of Jesus to the scribes and, and Pharisees in Matthew 23. And at the end of all that, Jesus gives this summary. He said, You serpents. You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? When Jesus said, woe to you. When the Lord, through his prophet, declares, woe to the bloody city. This is a serious statement. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of us letting the distractions of our week fade away and to consider what the Lord says in this woe. Ezekiel 24, verses 6 through 14, the Lord is speaking to his own people in Ezekiel 24, and twice he says, woe to the bloody city. But then he offers this conclusion. He says, I will act, I will not relent, and I will not pity, and I will not be sorry according to your ways and according to your deeds. I will judge you. Woe to you. The Lord will act. He will not relent. He will not be sorry. And he will judge according to your deeds. When the Lord speaks in such a way, we must listen. We need to be ready to examine ourselves. We need to be ready to be moved to action because the Lord is not dealing lightly. The the Lord does not say something like, woe to the bloody city, and then just give kind of a a small rebuke. This is worthy of our attention. So let's look what he says. Let's look at what he says. Woe to the bloody city, the place where blood is spilt, the place where innocent blood is constantly Shed. This is a place where under the pretense of justice, they would cover their hard actions of greed and hate and murder. They would say, we're acting in justice. We're acting to 
better serve our city by going out and destroying and oppressing other lands. Does that sound familiar? The pretense of justice to cover hate and criminal behavior and murder. This is our land today, dear friends. America is a nation of blood. We have destroyed millions of babies being ripped from their mother's womb and, and the nation as a whole celebrates that evil. This is a bloody land, a place where the innocent have not found protection. Just as Nineveh celebrated its murderous evil, so too does America. And friends, that ought to move us. We, we must understand the great need to Proclaim the truth of the gospel in every situation. What turns the heart of a mother who's going to murder her child? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Christ. It's the message that there is hope. What turns the heart of an abusive man? It's the gospel. It's the message of hope and transformation. What cures the heart of the adulterer? It's the gospel. It's the message of Christ. What cures the heart of these beloved little children who have these hearts that are idol factories, who, though they are made in the image of God, they're depraved wretches? What is the cure? It is the gospel. It is the message Christ. You notice that the Lord here says, woe to the bloody city. Not just the, the people who, who acted upon this evil, but to the entire city, all those who passively looked on while this sin and oppression was taking place. Dear friend, the Christian ought never overlook sin, whether in sin, in, in self, or in others, we must always confront sin. You do so with love and with patience, and you must do so only with the truth of God's Word. But we never overlook sin, because if we do, we share in its guilt. You're not punished for someone else's sin, but you will be punished if you idly sit by and do nothing while the world just runs wildly into immorality. You say, what do we do? We just said what we do. We preach and teach and proclaim Christ. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. So, so Nineveh was a place that was just constantly full of deceit and, and pillaging other places. Its king in this day, the king of Assyria, was a man named Sennacherib. And Isaiah 36 gives a picture of his deceit and his pillaging. In verses 16 and 17, the king of Assyria says to the people of Judah regarding their leader, Hezekiah, he said, do not listen to Hezekiah. Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and each drink of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bre bread 
and vineyards. What is that? That is an outright lie. What he was going to do was take the people away and oppress them. He was going to overrun their land and pillage them and use it for his own gain. Deceit marked the dealings of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire and its leaders and all of its people. It was deceit so they could take advantage of and exploit other people. And we know that is what false teachers and false people do. Second Peter chapter 2. Peter writes to the false teachers, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But while we're there, he also says, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They will exploit you with false words for their own gain. The duty of the church, dear friends, is to identify and to reject these false exploiters. These who seek to take advantage of other people because it's especially common within people who want to number themselves with evangelicals. We must identify them. We must identify specifically their sin. We must put them out. We must reject them. And we must not stand idly by while people oppress and exploit others, especially those who are innocent in their thinking and unsuspecting. And that's one of the things that is so despicable about the prosperity gospel is they take these people who are without hope, who, who are just clinging to a desperate need for something. And they just exploit. They take advantage. They take their money and they offer them nothing but falsehood. The church cannot stand idly by while that happens. also ought to mention and consider here that if not for Christ, we who are the church, we who are in Christ, we would be in this exact same position because we would be of our father, the devil, the father of all lies. We would walk in that same deceit and falsehood and chasing after the passions and pleasures of the flesh and self. So then take a personal inventory. Are you a slave of selfish ambition? Or counter to that in this context, are you a promoter of the truth? You say, I'm not a slave to selfish ambition. I, I gladly give myself to serve others. But if you don't promote and teach and proclaim the truth, then you are not opposed to this type of selfish ambition. It takes more than just a little bit of selflessness takes you dying to yourself and also bringing the truth to bear. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. Her prey never departs. They're never satisfied. They're never fulfilled. They're never content. They're always seeking to bring in more prey so they can amass more things, more goods, more power, more money to themselves. They're always going deeper into sin, always wanting more and never being content. You know, that's a major challenge in our day, this, this sin of discontentment. It's a major challenge, I think, especially for parents raising children in, in an age where they just see everything, 
all the goods, all the pleasures, all the treasures of the world. Parents, you need to teach your children to be content. Friends, we need to teach and encourage one another to be content because a content person never exploits another. If you're content in your position in life, you never seek to take advantage of others because you don't have an advantage that you're seeking to gain. We'll drop down now to, to verse 4. Verses 2 and 3 uh, are a description of the battle that goes on, I believe, in Nineveh. So verse 4 will kind of give this a little bit of a, of a summary feel to it where the Lord says, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. This is a picture, a picture of a pagan people who is given over to utter immorality. Just take a summary snapshot. The, the harlotry and the sorceries. It's pagan worship and it's immorality joined together. John Calvin talked about how, yes, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, they did gain a lot of their power through military might, through bringing terror on other nations and other peoples. But they also did it through seduction, through, through giving the idea of prosperity and pleasure and lulling an enemy to sleep and then they would go in and pillage and attack and overwhelm. Think about Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. That was what Nineveh offered. Proverbs 29.3, a man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. Nineveh was given over to this sinfulness. Because sin, whether in the church or, or any other group of people, it spreads like a horrible disease if it's not kept in check, if it's not accounted for. If it's not cut off, it spreads like a disease. And, and that's a reminder that we as the church must always be pushing back against sin. We must always be seeking to cut it off and to kill it. Because it, if it comes in among us, if, if we don't purge the evil from among us, if we don't strive to be a pure, set-apart bride for Christ, we will be overrun with sinfulness leads to our charge. We are not to be ignorant of the seductive ways of the world. We as individuals must seek to live out our position in Christ, washed, pure, spotless, blameless, righteous, justified. That is how we must live. Ephesians 4 says that we must lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And we must be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you must put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
Put away the lust of the flesh. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on Christ. You're nourished by the truth. And you put on Savior. Put off the flesh. Put on Christ. And then you're renewed by the truth of his word. By the powerful working of his spirit. There is no other way to be sanctified. There's no other way to have your life transformed. There's no other way to be made like Christ but to be filled with his word by the powerful working of the spirit and to put off all fleshly things and then be made like Christ. What about when you fail? What about when temptation wins? What about, Lord forbid, when you sin greatly? What do you do? Think about the story of the prodigal son. There's a lot of parallels to to Nahum 3. In Luke 15, verse 30, the, the older brother of the prodigal son described his brother like this. He said, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Why'd the father do that? You know the story. The son went off and he squandered his father's wealth on worldly, earthly pleasure and immorality. And then he comes back and the father, the father throws this party in honor of his son. Why did the father do that? Two reasons. Because of the grace of the father and because of the repentance of the sinning son. So, when you sin, when you even sin greatly, remember, dear friend, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You have a Father who gives you great grace. But you must come in repentance. You must stand upon faith. You must be willing to be transformed. You come by grace, through faith, and in repentance. Let's move on. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 now. So we're kind of moving backwards in, in a way. And I want to look here at a deadly battle. We've seen the diseased people. So let's consider the deadly battle. Verse 2, it says, The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, the galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen are charging, swords are flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies. I have to tell you, some commentators would actually put verses 2 and 3 within the description of Nineveh, saying that this is like their, their conquest where they would go out and just slay many, many people. But then there's also commentators who, who do kind of what I think we're doing here, where we separate it out and say that this is the Lord's destruction of Nineveh. This is a, a show and a reminder of how he's going to bring the people down. And this picture is just so compelling. It's so vivid. The walls of the city have come down. The noise of the whip. You, you have the horses and the war chariots just on the run, on the move through the city. Their spears are gleaming. Their swords are drawn. Their ready to make war, and they're destroying the enemies of the Lord. 
Imagine the fear of the people of Nineveh when they heard this. Then imagine even more when it actually came to fruition and they were experiencing the destruction of the Lord. This is a well-prepared invader. The, the Babylonian army that came and made war under the Lord's sovereign orchestration, this was a mighty army prepared to do great and mighty things. Nineveh was, remember, a, a great city. The Assyrians were the ruling empire of the day, and yet they are just utterly cut down and torn down. And this reminds us, dear friends, that our hope is not in a city. Our hope is not in anything of this earth. Our hope is in being a set-apart people of and for and to a mighty Savior. See the death of this battle. Many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies, and they stumble over all of these dead bodies. Who would hear that and be so foolish as to stand against the Lord's command? You know, in a way, we, we read that and we ask that question, but then let's just pause for a minute, say, how could they hear about this and still continue in their sin? But how many times has the Lord corrected you through his word, and yet you still run into fleshly desires? How many times have you received the truth and received correction and even genuine, genuinely repented and still turned back to sinful fleshliness? Think of the Lord's patience. Consider the clarity with which he identifies your sin, but then think about his patience and be humbled as you consider your past sin. You know, there, there's a way when we repent, we should move on from our sin because the Lord casts it away as far as east is to west and remembers it no more, and we should, in a way, do likewise. But you also ought to remember your past sin. Because then you remember the Lord's grace. Then you remember his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. You remember the guilt of the sin and how it didn't bring you lasting pleasure. And you're humbled. And you think of God's grace. And you're increased in your devotion towards this God. So don't be crippled by the reminder of your sin. Be humbled by it. Be pressed on by it. And as we're thinking about the disgrace of this city and us as the bride of Christ, let's consider this destruction and remember the promise of the Lord that if you are in Christ, if you've been made alive with him, your life is hidden. Your life is safe. Your eternity is secured. Paul said in Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. No matter the tribulation, no matter the persecution, you will one day suffer for your faith. If, if the world continues the trajectory it's on, in our lifetimes we will be persecuted for our faith. But take heart, dear friend, because your life is hidden with Christ in the Lord. So a disgraced, uh, diseased people a deadly battle, and then a disgraced city, verses 5 and following. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and to 
Show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you. I will make you vile. I will set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? And where will I seek comforters for you? Do you see that the punishment of this people finds some root and some tie-in to the harlotry of the nation, the fact that they once returned to the Lord and now have again turned away to go follow fleshly desires. The Lord begins, Behold, I am against you. The most terrifying words in all of Scripture. I am against you. It's like Jesus in his example in, in Matthew's gospel. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Behold, I am against you. The ones that the Lord punishes, he will punish utterly and completely. So let's look at the punishment. The Lord says that he will expose these people. Use some, some kid gloves a little bit with that. He will lay them bare and expose them be, before their many lovers. As the Lord would do with one that runs into this horrible immorality, he says, you will be exposed. You will be laid bare. And you just think about that in light uh, of our age and our culture that just places this bizarre priority on exposure, self-exposure. It's a right of freedom, and every vile act of wickedness seems to always come with this idea of exposure. The Lord says it's a punishment and a disgrace. Our world and our land loves it, and it's a reminder, friends, that we ought always be looking less and less like the world, more and more like Christ. You know, again, bizarrely, Sometimes evangelicals want to kind of take on some, some worldly, uh, so-called evangelicals, I guess. They want to take on some, some worldly things to, to be able to better go out and win the world. No, we're to be set apart, holy, sanctified, washed, and pure. That's how we win the world, by showing the distinct transformation of Christ. Lord is disgracing this people. He says, I will throw filth on you. I'll make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. It's just utter shame. This is what the Lord does to vile sinners who do not repent. It's destruction, exposure, and humiliation. And friends, I would just, at this, I would encourage you and I would plead with you, if you are walking in some kind of hidden or secret sin, now is the time to come clean and to repent. It's better to repent of your sin and to face some present discomfort than to go and face the judgment of God. Repent of your sin. You know, our homes and our relationships together as well, there should be places where sin is never tolerated. But 
I want you to hear the whole statement of that. A place where sin is never tolerated, but repentance is always celebrated. And that's difficult, I think, to grasp, especially as parents with, with growing children to, to hold it in a good and proper balance the accountability for wrong behavior, but the celebration of right behavior. And as your children get older and if the Lord saves them, then it's the accountability for sin and the celebration of repentance. That applies to our relationships together, right? That we don't tolerate sin in one another, but we respond to repentance in such a way that it's easy for someone to repent and to make their sin known because they know that they're going to be received in love and with forgiveness and with encouragement. And with patience as they strive to kill that sin. The Lord sets these people up as a spectacle because they weren't going to repent. When a brother or sister repents, there should never be a spectacle. There should be forgiveness and love and accountability and building up in Christ. The Lord then says, and it will come about that all who will see you will shrink away from you, and they'll say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? The humiliating destruction drives people away. The Lord's destruction is so extreme that people are fleeing because they don't want to see it. And then the Lord asks these rhetorical questions. Who will grieve for Nineveh? Nobody will. Because Nineveh was a wicked, immoral, oppressive place. Nobody was going to grieve at their fall. Where will I seek comforters for you? Who is going to come and comfort this disgraced, diseased people? No one. That is the Lord's response and should be our response to sin. There's this separation and this fleeing from it. That really ought to serve also as our final pointer to the glorious, saving, cleansing work of Christ, which then points us, kind of as we've been studying in our book on Wednesday night, not just to stop at the work of Christ, but then to go beyond that and see the glorious person of Christ. We talked about Ephesians 5 earlier and the idea of the church as the bride of Christ and that we're washed and cleansed and purified so that he can present us to himself spotless holy, and blameless. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the call of the gospel, that no matter the shame of your sin, no matter how far you've gone into sin, no matter how wretched you may think you have been, Christ can purge and wash every sin. The, the worker of the gospel, Jesus Christ, is even greater and more glorious than the good news itself. And it's that person, the eternal Son of God who died for your sins, that took the punishment on your behalf. Surely that great Savior can bear any stain and any sin that you've ever committed. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read part of that earlier. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, leading up to that passage, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Such, dear friends, were all of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is not the Lord putting lipstick on a pig. This is the Lord transforming a lost and dead soul and conforming it into the image of Christ by the work of Christ. So if you're in Christ, dear one, hear this, that you are washed and you are lovely. You are beloved to him. And if you're beloved to him, why would you not give your life to live for the one who died for your soul? There's nothing good or praiseworthy or desirable in you. Christ gave his life for you. Why would you not in return give all of your being to him? It means every moment of every day. Dear friend, you are not promised tomorrow. You don't know when the Lord may call you home or when Christ may return. So get about his business. Be about his work. Come out of that hidden sin. Find a brother or sister and confess that sin. Go before the Lord and repent. Be renewed. Have your mind filled and flooded with the scriptures. Have your sinful lifestyle washed by the blood of Christ. Forsake your sin and walk in a manner worthy of Christ. By his grace, live as those who will be presented to him on that last day, holy and blameless. Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 16, he said, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit being conformed to Christ, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, being conformed to Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace. May we be a people for His possession, and people for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come now and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. Lord, there's such richness in your truth. There's so much that you give us to teach and to instruct us. There's so many ways that we could take and apply your word. And I just pray that your spirit would help us in that work, help us to that end, to take and apply the word as we ought. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in the way that we as your church live. Pray that we would be a people set apart to be your possession.
that we would denounce ungodliness in worldly ways and that we would live set apart, righteous, godly, and sensible lives in the present age as we look to the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes upon Christ. That is our prayer. By the power of your Spirit and for the sake of your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.